Hey everyone, this is John Thornton. I'm joined with Bernetta Williams again, and today we're gonna to talk about how educators empower the black community. Joining us today will be Shahana Miles. Shoshona Miles. Shoshona Miles and Jenniki Bright. Uh, tell us about yourselves. We'll start with Shoshona Miles first. Um, a little about myself. I am um, from, from born and raised in South Philadelphia. Um, you know, um, I went to a little small private school in South Philly. Um, then I went to Philadelphia High School for Girls and I graduated from Morgan State University. I raised in a two-parent home, um, loving family. I actually was like raised next door to my grandmother and my grandfather and my aunts. And so um, when I think about, you know, growing up and who I am, it's, it's family is a, a big part of who I am. Um, my family inside my home, as well as just like my family community. I grew up in a time where if I got in trouble at school, I was getting in trouble by five different people before my mom even got home from work. And so um, that's just a little about me as a kid. Um, I grew up as a dancer, dancing with Point Breeze Performing Arts Center. That's what brought me to education and what made, makes me love what I do now, which is this is my 19th year in education. Um, I've taught all different grade levels, third grade, first grade, fourth, fifth grade. I've been an assistant principal and I'm on, um, this is my sixth year as principal at Kip West Philadelphia Prep, located at 59th in Baltimore. How about you, uh, Jenniki Bright? Tell me a little about yourself. Hi, I'm Jenniki Bright. I'm West Philadelphia born and raised. I am a Girls High graduate, a Temple U graduate and a Cheney University <laughs> uh, graduate. Um, I am a wife of a fire chief and I have three three wonderful children. I've been an educator for over 25 years and through this journey it has led me to become a program director of a reading program um, as well as an education liaison on the staff of Senator Vincent Hughes. Thank you both. Um, so Let's just jump right into it. I do want to talk about some of the modern influence or actually talk about some of the barriers you had to face as educators. I'll start um, with you, Shoshana. Yeah, I'll jump in. Um, when I think about my journey as an educator, it has it has evolved, right? You know, I, I get to be a principal and I get to like intentionally pick the staff that I place in front of students, you know, in the way that I hire and all of those things. But you know, growing up as a woman, a black woman, um, wanting to be in education, knowing I, I did want to do more than teach. I, I knew I wanted to be an assistant principal, at least at the time, um, you know, working for my organization um, was very much, you know, black people weren't the first people looked to, looked at or looked at for certain positions. And so I've always felt myself just disrupting anywhere I go, making a place for myself, um, stepping boldly into spaces with my earrings and all the things that come with who I am as a black woman. Um, I get that from my mother though. I want to talk about that because I remember, you know, my mom grew up working in the hotel restaurant um, industry. And so if you know, in the, you know, in the seventies when she was doing it, it was very racist. You know, she could, she had to wear small earrings. She couldn't braid her hair and all you know, those types of things were happening. And I remember her coming home and telling my dad, um, she was supposed to get a promotion and she was like I didn't get it I was supposed to get it and I'm quitting my job and from that day she stayed home and she started her own business and so my mom was a seamstress and so if you lived in South Philly you were going on a prom a wedding anything my mom was 
if you wasn't getting your dress made by my mom, you wasn't getting your dress made, right? And so that her making that stand and doing that showed me at a very young age that I either need to disrupt then, you know, they say, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring your own seat. Um, and I did, I've done a lot of that, you know, education has been a very much a white boy organization, white women, you know, you, I saw a lot of that um, coming up. Recently, I've seen a lot of ch positive changes that I'm, you know, I'm happy about and like direct initiatives like Sharifa Mekki and, uh, you know, Black Educator Development Centers. There's just a lot more focus on it um, that I'm happy to see. But the biggest battle for me was just like, one, knowing the need to have more African-American teachers in front of Black kids. That was like a problem for me early on. Like, how, how do I have a, how am I working at a, a school with a school full of Black kids and most of the teachers are white? Like, that just was never okay to me. I also knew that I had choices though. And so I started looking for the schools that fit me and, and working at the schools and the places that work, you know, that, that, that worked for me. And so um, that was it. I think it's really interesting that you, what I'm hearing is you being an advocate for so many children in education who are black and seeing that it was being misguided by many people who were white, who were becoming teachers. While there's a lot of great, teachers who are white. I just want to be very clear on that. Um, some of them didn't understand the culture. So you had to step up and be an advocate for those students and take them under your week and kind of do double the work and everything. Um, let's talk about the cultural integration within schools. And the reason why this is important is because understanding the culture and the integration component, is there any training for teachers on that cultural integration component? within school settings? It may now because it's more talked about. Usually it was under the umbrella of diversity, but it wasn't necessarily cultural. Um, it really spiked with diversity when you started talking about um, sexual orientation um, and stuff like that. So being more sensitive um, to, you know, the LG, you know, community, like, you know, being more sensitive um, if, you had a child who identified, who may look like a male or on paper was a male, but identified as female. So I saw more of that type of sensitivity training and diversity when they would say diversity. Um, but like I said, it, I see some things now, even with PDs that come across um, and even some of the trainings that I've actually facilitated. Um, and more so maybe because I'm facilitating, I'm gonna make sure that cultural part is touched on and matter of fact, not even touched on, is the focus. And then we're gonna take back the other part and infuse it. But um, there's still ways to go with it because then it's, you have to be careful when it's presented to schools, who's presenting it, you know, and where this information is coming from. Um, not someone who studied, you know, black people <laughs> who now wanna come out and say, now I know, and you know, I'm down with the folks. So you, you know, hear me roar. Um, I would say for me, uh, and I'm going to just speak to where I am now, like working for KIPP. And if you've been in education, you've heard about KIPP. And so KIPP has had, they've, you know, we've had a long way to go. And so even where, you know, where I am now and where we were 10 years ago as a school, we've come a long way, um, you know, and it's mainly from a lot of people, Black people from the inside, sounding the alarms and disrupting and saying, yo, this, you know, you can't come in and drop schools and, and your design is to drop schools in urban neighborhoods and then you bring in TFA teachers and teachers that don't even understand our culture. Um, and then, you know, the biggest um, 
eye-opening thing for me was um, we had these like regional trainings where all of the school leaders from every school, KIPP school across the nation, and it's over 200, 300 all over the states come for PD. And I'm in this room looking around and I'm like, where the black folks at? Like, how, how, is it, how does this happen? And so, you know, I said something about it and other black leaders said something about it. And from that came, you know, we have affinity circles, we have monthly equity PDs that we have as leaders and for teachers and, um, you know, even around our hiring practices, we reevaluated that and we were specific around the questions that we ask. And, you know, I, I will tell you in an interview, I'm not looking for people that are here to save little black kids. I'm looking for people that are here to serve black students. And this is what that looks like for me. And where are you on your cultural competency journey? What does, what does that mean for you? You know, and, and most importantly, why do you want to come teach little black kids in, in, in West Philly? Um, why do you want to do that? And so, I, you know, um, I am happy with the work we're doing. We still have a lot more work to do. Um, you know, I have a lot more work to do. I'm doing, you know, more as a principal, making sure that I'm teaching. I'm making no assumptions about what my teachers know. I assume that they know nothing and I, I teach what they need to know. You know, I'm teaching, you can't teach in West Philly and you don't understand about MOVE. You can't teach in West Philly and you don't understand that police brutality didn't just start in this pandemic. It's been going on and let me teach you how long it's been going on for. And so, you know, I have a, a wonderful staff who lean into that work. They're not afraid to do that work. I keep my, my favorite book here, They Carried Us, where I'm constantly teaching out of this book about great black female leaders in Philadelphia to them. And so that's that's where the work lies for me. And so people know when you work for me, um, those are the things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for like really special people that that bring education, but they also bring something else too. You know, like I, I sing, I dance, I, I, I you know, I, I just want our kids to have well-rounded people that just, that, and I want the teachers to run the school every day, not just because they're teachers, but because they get to bring this other thing with them too. Um, I do want to talk about what is your vision of leadership within the community you service? Um, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast today. Um, I keep saying Sharif Elmecki's name. I, I think you are. I, if you don't know who he is, look him up. He's doing a lot of education work, the right education work. You know, anytime he's doing something, that's where I want to be listening and learning. Um, but one of the things he said today is that um, we need to start stop raising our kids to be like, good kids, like, you know, almost like take the, the bride. We don't want our kids taking a bride that James Baldwin talks about in his writing. We want to raise kids that are, we're planting the seed for them to be the revolutionaries that we need them to be. And so for me, one, I, I want to see our kids leading more. I think our kids are the ones that's going to ignite this in turn, make the, the changes that we need to see. I know that. Um, but as far as like educators and and leadership in the community, I want to make sure and see that our kids are affirmed, they are valued, and they can also be challenged intellectually at the same time. I do want to see us get to the place where um, we plant the seed for the rev revolution in our youth, and we back them, and we listen to them. I think sometimes we listen at our youth, and we don't actually listen to them. That's, you know, those are the things that I want to see. Same question goes for you, Ms. Bright. Um, what are some of the visions of leadership that you have within your the community you service? Since I deal with um, more of the younger babies, is look at what they're learning and look at what they're expected to learn and making sure that there's representation of them 
um, because it starts there. Um, because you can get into this whole cultural approach and you know be you know be proud and da 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 da. But then when I open the book, um, and I don't see anything that looks like me, or I'm secondary to this you know to this white person, or I'm you know it's and and then the black person you know. But when you open up, whether it's a storybook, whether it's you know it's a narrative or you know informational text, it should be. And I say that almost to be in a positive light, you know, because you need to tell some truths. There are some truths out there, and we need to make sure our youth also understand the truth. Um, and it's interesting you brought up the move because I know people on both sides, like black people from both sides that were in that area, and they're what people and I agree with um, Shoshana, do your research. Uh, because there was an issue, and that was why the police were brought there, but the attitude and what they did is not what anyone wanted to happen. You know, and the, some of the lessons, the key part I like to share about that part is we need to be able to have a conversation. And maybe if a conversation is somewhat what the police could have done in a role of a police, well, then let's bring these two parties together and let's have a conversation because maybe there's some misunderstanding and maybe some things that we could do differently, but because, or a community leader or somebody, somebody of that stance to bring the people together. You know, we, we, got, we can shout about it, we can cry about it, we can get mad about it, but we're going to come together. And we're going to come up with a solution. Now, I think, you know, growing up in our generation, generations before, we were taught and raised to assimilate, be good, go to school, you know, get an education. But our kids now are understanding, I'm Black. <laughs> and you're going to accept me as being Black and deal with me and my Blackness. I'm not assimilating to your whiteness that continues to chart, you know, and change. And I don't know what white is today, you know, but I'm Black and I'm always going to be Black, you know, no matter what my you know, whatever, but I'm, I'm going to be back and I'm proud to be that. People say they want a certain type of black folk, but they, they don't want us, you know, they, they want it around their lens, you know, and, I, you know, they want the polish and we don't, that's, as long as there's a problem, you know, for black people, it's going to continue to be a problem. And, you know, and we got to, we have to get, our kids have to know that and they have to start thinking about what disrupting that looks like, even at a, first grade level, even at a second grade, you know, the, the best thing about this pandemic has been having my kindergarten daughter sitting next to me, actually seeing and hearing what a principal actually does, right? It's like I had been telling her, you know, I'm, I'm your principal, I'm your mom, I'm the principal, and she thought she knew what that was, and now when I hear her on her little Zoom call saying stuff, I know she heard me say, you know, she's in there, like she's a little teacher principal, and so, you know, that that's the leadership, that is, that is what our kids need more of you know, seeing that. So I completely agree. I really, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like you guys are saying with educators and teaching them um, about how to be a walking example through what they read, through what they see. And one of the things I thought of was when I first got to this community center, there was a young black girl who had an issue with her hair texture. And then I look around the room that I'm playing with her in and she didn't have any black dolls at all. And so that's what made me think of the importance of teaching the black culture, having black dolls here. Um, it was a struggle to get a black doll here because they didn't understand why, but it was that concept of having diversity dolls, not just black, but Hispanic and Asian and everything else within the community center. So that way they can have that understanding. Then I thought about the superhero component 
And who are their superheroes? What is their representation of superheroes? And most superheroes in comics and movies are predominantly white. Then you think about their influences. Who are their modern influences today with the youth and education? Social media, TV, music, and celebrities all take place in how they influence the children today. What are your view of these components and how they influence children? The superheroes generally come from like the Marvel series and whatever, but if you really get into the comics, you'd be surprised how many are actually black, you know, or were black, but now have been changed to fit this, you know, the white man sees today. Um, even with Black Panther, love Black Panther. Um, got to the end of the movie, and it was like, of course there's going to be a white guy that saves the day, you know? And it's just like, oh. like, I was like, yes, 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 throughout the whole movie. And then it gets to that point at the end, and it's just like, it's still a white movie. You know, like, you still got to have that white person that comes and saves the day. But our children don't understand that this is all they see, and they have 24-hour access to this. I think what you said is so crucial because it's the imaging component how we're represented through media and other outlets. While we might know if we did our research and know history, we would know the, I mean, how many, how I think it was Marvel or DC, like they focus on having black representation. It was very important for that diversity component, but what was projected in movies and on your regular TV shows like the Batman and Robin series, they got rid of Eartha Kid, And then they had somebody who was represented as a white, um, Catwoman and everything else. So those type of components that come into play with everything. The um, well, I think it was called Julia or Jackie about a nurse, where they had the first positive representative representation of a black woman working in the industry is what was being pioneered. But people don't know these things unless they do their research. The biggest problem I have is we're in a time where people are lazy and they refuse to do their research. So for them, research is, you know, Alexa, what is, you know, blah, 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 you know, or Google and, you know, and it's going to show me in nanoseconds the answer. So I was going to just mention to some of the things that you were saying too about like imaging and visual things that the kids are now doing. That is their way of, like you said, researching, and now they're backtracking to the to the written form of things now. So, as you said, like watching a movie or watching a documentary about uh, the Move uh, group and what happened with them, and then later on taking out that aspect of it and saying, "Oh, well, where was I at in?" I don't know what year it was, but whatever year and what was going on around that politically, what was going on, what was going on around the neighborhood, what was going on within my family, what was going on within my community, but doing like a reverse research aspect because we're throwing things at them and they're taking all of this in. It kind of reminds me of like when I was in social work, I was taking in so many stories of people that had so many adverse situations. I was in the overload. I was like, whoo, it's too much. Wait a minute. Hold the horses. Wait, hold on. How do we hone in on what matters to us? So with that being said, social media, um, how is it affecting how children are sourcing information? Miss um, Miles, I'm going to shoot the question to you, but if you want to touch on anything that was said prior, you can definitely could. Okay. 
well, I live in the middle school world. So fifth through eighth graders use social media for basically three, like music, <laughs> entertainment, and then to interact with each other. And so when I think about like my, my uh, Instagram timeline, right, it's like a, it does this group think thing for me without me having to do it. Like I, I follow Citizen Z, I follow Sharif El Making, you know, and so those things pop up. And so I'm constantly seeing stories that are relevant. Yeah, this is this is the stuff. Yeah, yeah. But even with that, I have to research it. I worry for our kids that um, you know, that their Instagrams, you know, are like no gun zone. And that brother's doing a lot of work, but our kids need other outlets. I would like to see our kids, you know, there's an innovative side of this that I think we haven't even tapped in and on toward our kids to um, to leverage in a way that you know, other races have, have leveraged it. And I think that that comes back to the school. I think we've missed some marks so that we are learning in the pandemic just around basic skills around how to type and create an essay and use PowerPoint. And even more, can you use Excel? Because if you can use Excel, then you really, you know, off to something else. And so even beyond social media and the impact that it has for entertainment and the things that middle schoolers want and, and need, um, you know, I worry more about um, it being unfiltered. I worry about the way I see middle schoolers using it. And I worry if we gave kids too much too fast. Well, let me add to that. Because how do you feel like home life can, or the environments they're around, like the people who they're around, can help support them with what they're learning? Because social media does give misleading information. And when they source the information, like sometimes kids will come with me with information and I'm like, no, that's not right. That's not what happened. And just making sure that we as um, in the home and around that environment get proper information. How do you feel like we can do that and be successful at it? You know, I, I think the first thing for me is I just think parents, when we, uh, we need to teach parents more, like I'm, I get to learn more at the school level because I'm encountering these things. I'm seeing kids have the, you know, a parent say to me, my child doesn't even have Instagram. Oh, yes, they do. It's right here. Yeah. This fake app right here, that one that says that, you know, and so we have to teach parents that too, because they are, technology is growing with us. You know, I think that's it. Again, at the middle school level, kids are not really looking for information. They're looking to get at each other. They're looking for entertainment. They, you know, it's music, it's um, certain people that have pages that they like. And then again, it's around massive text chains and kids just hanging out and using social media as a means to do that. Not even talking to each other on the phone, just like either texting and maybe doing some FaceTime. So just really having them understand the impact of that. Well, Jenniki, I want to ask you, because what I'm learning is a lot of youth, they're starting to use YouTube. And sometimes it's unsupervised when the children use YouTube and they spend hours on YouTube. Um, but with that, if you watch the video on YouTube, it's one video after the next, and then you never know what the next content that is coming up, especially if you don't have um, the, the setting set so that way they're supervised appropriately. Um, what do you say for parents who have children on those type, watching those type of social media outlets? Principal Miles already said, like a lot of parents like, are not even aware. And some of them, unfortunately with work schedule or whatever, just don't even have the time, you know, or just, you know, the kids will switch, you come around, they'll change screens, they know more about how to hide stuff than you do. And, and if the parent and some of the other side, and parents, if you don't know, you need to find out. 
And it's okay not to know. There's so many ways now that you, you may need to watch a YouTube or a podcast to find out. But, you know, there's a lot more resources out there to find out. No, listen, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I love that you took a lot of tips, challenge parents, and transfer some skills that you learned along the way. I want to ask you three tips that you would suggest um, for parents to kind of motivate them to learn about their culture and just transfer on to parents. I would say I would echo um, having solid family times where you sit down and you're discussing um, you know, how to, you know, a, a big thing that um, middle schoolers um, encounter is like this thing happened, you know, there's, you know, I tell um, my students all the time that, you know, life is around 10%, 10 of life is what you learn. The other 90% is how you react to this thing that's in front of you. And so how do we have those conversations with kids? This thing could happen. Oh, I read this thing. Oh, I saw this thing on social media. Have you seen it? Like, I think we just need to have more honest conversations and, and um, opportunities for our kids to engage in safe dialogue with us around all of this stuff that's happening. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, you know, set boundaries well, however you can. I think there's there's a world where we can have less of some of this, you know, and I, this is even something that I'm working on with myself, um, with my own children at home, given that my daughter's still in virtual learning and then she wants to YouTube and then she wants to take my phone. Like it's, it's too much, you know, let's bring back Monopoly game nights. Um, I think game night is a, a great thing to bring back, um, you know, to homes. Um, and I think the third thing I would say is um, keep it real, like keep it real with our kids. They can, they can read when we are, we are BSing with them. Um, and so we owe it to them to tell them the truth um, and to, you know, there, there's some sugar coating that has to come with the age. We got to give it to them in a way that they can digest it, but we need to just make sure that we are giving our, you know, teaching our kids with facts um, and all of that grounded in love. And so teach the truth to our kids. I think that um, what you guys said was really enlightening, um, even for me, just to hear some of it. While, of course, some of us, we know it, but just for parents to hear that these are some tips that we could use. This is how we can give back to our community and build our community stronger and make sure that the children are competent enough to understand what they're seeing versus what they need to know. And I think that's essential. Um, educators social responsibility comes into play with this so what are as an educator what are some of the ways that you can help youth when dealing with these social issues that they're dealing on a day-to-day -day basis how can you support them it's layered I, I think that's a layered question um, it might even be down to a case-by-case -case of how to deal because it's not a systematic approach. Um, it's not like, okay, everybody's coughing, drink some cough syrup, you know, or eat a pineapple, so they say, you know, um, it's, a, it's a layered approach about how to deal with that. Um, and knowing who you're dealing with, um, what youth you're dealing with, what type of youth you're dealing with, um, because you may not be real to them like if you come a certain way like you don't understand me so i checked out like i can't even rationalize what you're saying because i've checked out um or i don't deem you you don't understand my story you don't understand my struggles you you know so it goes back to something i said earlier like you have to tell your truth 
you know, um, like I could have said, you know, hey, you know, I decided now I'm going to just jump into this literacy world. And da, 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 da. But my truth, if you want to know my truth, this is what happened. This is why I transitioned. I left something that I, I love to go somewhere else. I wanted to move on to my next question about COVID, Black Lives Matter, and the Capitol insurrection. What approaches did you take, Ms. Miles specifically, Mrs. Miles specifically, on talking to your youth about this? And what was the effect that you saw from that? This has been like, uh, you know, leading through a pandemic with all of the things that were coming down, right? There's the, the COVID, then there's this social unrest and all this stuff was happening at the same time. And so, you know, one of the things I did was I brought in, I brought in help. I needed, I needed help because it was a lot for me. And so in order for me to maintain balance, have the self-care that I needed to, you know, I, I was like, it was nice. I was crying, you know, when, when you're watching these, you know, our brothers being murdered on TV for everyone to see and, you know, all of those things. And so, again, um, teaching my staff, you know, not assuming that everybody watched CNN the night before, that people understand the issue at a bigger level. And so really taking the time to collect the resources and teach. Um, and then just teaching, you, you know, you still have to teach educators that we are not here to put our, our beliefs on kids. We are here to provide them with the, the, the education, the truth, and then we step back and they'll discern for themselves. And so we, you know, our, our kids, do, you know, we did, uh, chat with tributes, we did so we did virtual protests, we did all, you know, all types types of responses. But we also a school when we were in person, you know, we would do protests within the school. And so we, you know, all year long, I we like to say, uh, well I like to say, you know, we're gonna get blackity black in February, but we blackity black all, you know, we black all year long. But we get blackity black. But and so we don't have to, you know, I don't really our school doesn't have to do this adjustment when Black History Month comes because we're always assessing our curriculum, seeing how we can adjust it to make sure it's affirming our students and, and valuing our community and our, our, back, our background and our history beyond slavery and segregation. Like we are way more than that. And so um, time, space, and again, teaching because everyone doesn't know how to go into a space with our students and engage in those conversations in a productive way, which really a lot of times what you really just need to do is provide the information and then listen. And you learn the most from how the kids respond and what they say. Um, so yeah, just time and teaching, time, space and pausing, you know, like not worrying about um, long-term plans and this assessment that's coming next week. No, we're going to stop here and now and address this thing because it's very important to our community. And so, and there's so much, so many layers of things happening specifically in Southwest, right where my school is that I can't not pause. I can't not take time to teach and make sure everybody learns and understands. Um, Cause people like to get caught up in the movements. This, you know, this is more than a movement. You know, this is a life, this is a community. This is years and decades of of this thing you know we just now the, now that the world has stopped everyone now has you know we have a hyper focus and have more time to see and that even goes back to what you said around um that diversity piece you know i think diversity is great but um you know our kids are still operating in a system that wasn't created for them where exactly. they were they were um, intentionally left out of these curriculums, intentionally not taught about it. And so 
um, you know, we also have to have to watch. Um, um, we, we need to be direct about that, no matter what color you are, white, black, purple, whatever, um, that that happened. And, and, and people need to understand what that means to black people, no matter where you are. We can't afford for 2021 for anyone, whether they're Asian or white or not to understand the black, the, the struggle, like, the, like what's happening with us. And, and, and it is deserved and owed to us boldly and directly. You need to understand and know about, you know, black people. I, and, and if anybody knows anything about South Philly, um, I talk, I, I'm saying that because South Philly is like, you know, a melting pot of, you can go to a little school like Gantt and you'd be surprised, you know, some of the things, you know, that, that happen when you have this diverse culture where people just, it's not really diversity. You know, people still are in these little pockets and want to let in and learn what they want to learn. And we have to be bold around like, I, 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 I'm, I want to see black people win. Whether I'm white, you know, whether you're white, purple, like the more, that's what this movement is about. That's, that's, that's why Kaepernick took a knee. That's, you know, all of those things are happening, not because of diversity, because of this thing that's happened with black people. And so um, our kids deserve to know that, not in a way that's, you know, watered down or kind of tiptoed around, you know, kids are going to have to start asking their parents more and, 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 you know, and, and, and think about, do I have any black friends and why or why not? Or, you know, and, and what that looks like and what type of research do I have to do for myself? Cause that won't be the norm always. So. I want to move on to um, black education because I feel like it's natural. Or if anybody wants to add on to the conversation you're more than welcome to. Well, um, as Ms. Moss was speaking I was just thinking um, that both of you are both from HBCUs and also operate in, in spaces that have this form of, I guess, diversity uh, in an aspect. Um, and to me, I thought that that was very interesting because I mean, just to digest it that way, because in education, I went to Temple University, which is a PWI, um, but, it was always interesting to me to understand the aspect of how HBCUs actually educate their, their incoming students because it is not, I mean, I have a, a family members, family members that went to Morgan State and other and Cheney and Lincoln, and it is not washed down. It is not sugar-coated. You come in, it's very similar to like our elementary schools here and our middle schools, like Sankofa and, and Mhotech, And it's just, it's not this, oh, everybody is accepted. No, we're talking about this subject right now and this is important. And everything else that the other communities, the other cultures are bred, their, their injustices are bred from what we experience. So it's like that bandwagon mentality. Oh, well, let me hop on because this is bothering me about this day and the third, which we understand wholeheartedly. But in the roots of it all, it's black. It is so black. It is so deep rooted into our whole facade and how we operate. It was always, it was always um, for me, just so passionate how, how many students and young people want to go to HBCUs to learn more about what it is that we didn't learn in education. So 
that's that's what I wanted to say because I think that that in itself speaks volumes when you're talking to youth about learning who they are and how they want to grow and be leaders in their communities. I think we you know, really push more HBCUs for our children, you know, and start from maybe elementary school, you know, taking them to the campus, exposure. Um, because oftentimes in Philadelphia, what do you see? Temple, UPenn, Drexel, LaSalle, St. Joe's, you know, depending on what area of the city you live in, that's your exposure. Um, so that's what you think when you see college and what it's like, but to really take a, you know, a 40 minute, maybe an hour, depending on where you live, go out to Cheney, go out to Lincoln University that's right here. And just to get that experience on campus, it's just something, you know, going to Bennett, starting out my college career at Bennett, um, well, first I went on a college tour, um, an HBCU college tour. So I got to see schools that I never, like Claflin, like schools I've never even heard about. Like you heard about Morehouse, you heard about Spelman, because I'm supposed to get married, married Morehouse, man. Um, actually married to Skiggy Man, but <laughs> he told me that's better. <laughs> um, and Bennett is actually the sister school to Morehouse, not us, though. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, to go and to go on these campus and to see at that time being a junior in high school, but to see these young, these college, they look like me, all of them look like me, you know, and the way they embraced as soon as we got the way they embraced it, it was just such a natural feeling. Um, and then stepping foot, you know, and that's how I found that I never heard about Bennett until I went on this college tour. And, you know, they come in and actually Spellman disappointed me when I went down there because I'm, you know, I'm girl, so I'm used to this sisterhood and come on down there. And they pretty much treated you like you were nothing unless you were at Spellman. Um, like they're like, we don't even acknowledge you until you come to Spellman. Um, so, but then I went to Bennett and it was like what I was looking for from Spellman, that's what was felt. You know, and then it was like, sister, like, soon as we got the bus, you know, they embraced us. Um, when I stepped foot as a student on campus, the way the faculty embraced you, you know, there was no, okay, class is over, I'm done with you. My advisor was like, I had a standing, like, Thursday afternoon appointment with her, you know, because once she knew I wasn't from North Carolina, you know, so I'm out of town, she it was a check-in. And she wasn't getting paid. It wasn't something like to do. You know, a couple times I went to her house. You know, we cooked. You know, it was just that embrace to see how I was doing when I got sick. She came to the hospital. You know, North Carolina stayed with me. You know, she got a phone call. She didn't know. Someone called her to say this is what happened. That was not, that would never would happen in Temple. They would have said, you missed X amount of classes, but you still owe money. You know, if I didn't show up. The president of the school was trying to figure out how they could still work with me for me to come back down there. You know, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't, you know, and all these different things that where, you know, a PAY is what maybe, <laughs> you know, depending on the type of athlete you are, you know, you know, would have maybe reached out, wouldn't have been the president, you know, been someone calling. But just to have that love on experience and our children need that. They need to start from, from the childcare. And a lot of times they get it in that childcare, like early childhood, because it's usually somewhere, you know, neighborhood or somewhere where they're, you know, they look like them. And then they go into elementary school. And it's just because they go into school for, with an exclamation point. And the sad part is when our kids sometimes get to second grade, it's like a period. They're done. You know, from second grade, from seven, eight years old, they're like, check, I'm done. Because that 
pretending if it's kindergarten that they started there, that was two years of feeling not worthy. You know, you start watching an exclamation point turn to a comma, and now it's a period. They're done. You know, but if we can, you know, have more Miss Miles, you know, and even if you're in that kind of institution, but we're going to say, no, 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 not my babies, you know, and have that Sankofa, you know, mentality for our children. Because guess what? I heard, um, John, you mentioned Jewish Heritage Month. Well, they got schools. They have schools for their kids, you know, where they're able to do that, you know. So why not have these schools for our kids and taking them all the way through? When, you know, one thing about this last election, what they were highlighting, the key players from this last election all went to HBCUs. You know, they didn't go, now they may have gotten their master's or they may have gotten their law degree from, you know, X, Y, and Z, but their foundation was from an HBCU. And I think we need to make sure our children understand the importance, you know, when you watch like the Cosby show and you would see Bill Cosby wear the, you know, the different sweatshirts and stuff like that, you know, we're trying to understand what the message was behind that. You know, like that was my whole HBCU because I was going to go to a different world. Like I was going, you know, to that campus. Like that was going to be me. Like, you know, and I wanted to have that because that's what was instilled. Our kids don't have that. So it was our job to make sure that we are exposing them to that, that they look like you, and it, it truly exists. You know, this is real life. This is not fake or that that's some no, this is real life. This is where you can be. And they will embrace you. And you don't have to have an excellent um, SAT score, you know, because they'll take you in, they'll nurture you. Because somewhere, somehow doing a lot, it's some little description says our kids don't need nurturing. You know, they come out grown, like they push out and now they grown. Five years old, young man. No, it's a baby. Nine-year-old girl, when that nine-year-old girl had to tell the police, well, I am a child. You know, stop acting like a child. I am a child. I'm not letting this not being a child. So the more and more we have these conversations, the more and more as educators or in the facility where you are around children, you are in that village, you got to keep having these conversations. You got to keep exposing them. And if you don't know, that's why the village is important. Make sure someone in your village that can they can say, hey, this is real, and then take them. You know, maybe they don't end up at Cheney, but maybe they'll end up at Hampton. Maybe they'll end up at Grambling. You know, maybe they'll end up at Tuskegee. You know, instill it with them. I was determined to at least get my master's from an HBCU, so that's why I went to Cheney. Now, it was a different experience because I wasn't on campus during that time. So thank God I had that time at Bennett to understand what that was. But it was like I was determined. You know, my story is going to start with an HBCU, it's going to end with an HBCU. I just want to add on about uh, yep, Mr. and going to uh, HBCUs and even college. For me, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a different perspective of the Black community. I'm straight up from North Philly, West Philly, the bottoms, Badlands. So, and people don't really get that from me because I've lived in an array of areas and everything growing up. And my mom taught me from a different perspective, but there's so many youth who are marginalized, who are black, who do not feel like college is for them. I'm one of those people. I do not feel like I got my bachelor's and associates because I felt like I needed to, to prove to everybody else that I was educated. But I, this level of education that I had was from me, my mom telling me to go to the library every day and making sure I was educated on that level. This is not from schooling. And 
when I say that is because the black history component was not taught to me from an academic level. While there were a couple of teachers, one or two teachers who really did go full out on um, the black history and teaching. And they were actually white teachers that I had who taught me about birth of a nation, who taught me about um, a lot of other things that Walt Disney and um, D.W. Griffith working with Paramount, or he didn't work for Paramount, but fusing artists and United Artists and together with Disney and everything else. He taught me all that, right? Me saying that it made me as an individual who did not like school and education seek more for myself. And you have to empower yourself and know your self-worth first as a black person, because people are gonna tell you, they're gonna ascribe to you who you are. And unless you know who you are, you will be conditioned to internalize those terms and everything else and feel like college is necessary for me to be successful. In all honesty, you don't need to go to college. You need your ambition and you need your intelligence. Intelligence is different from education. And so be aware of the difference and the distinction. And intelligence is being cognizant enough to know how to interpret things and be, I don't want to miss, help me out if I'm miss saying anything wrong, but knowing how to interpret things in ways that others cannot interpret it. So you're not taught that in school. Interpretation is different. That's part of intellect. If I'm wrong, please correct me. But um, we just need to be aware of being open-minded and seeking those opportunities and fighting for those opportunities for ourselves and not limiting ourselves to drugs, uh, alcohol, anything that will deter us from our goals. And I just definitely wanna put that out there because I'm one of those people, I only went to school and I have debt now to get in this seat that I'm in today. But ultimately I could have just started my own nonprofit with motivating a lot of youth and not having that same level of education. I've, working here, I've learned and met a lot of people who do not have a past a high school diploma who are excellent at what they do. So I wanna say something because I have conversations about this with John all the time, but it's, for me, I can have a bird's eye view because my family dynamic is different. And I mean, it's a, just full transparency. My, my mom, full education, master's degree, what have you. My dad ended at eighth grade, but he has so much tenacity and so much workforce and so much push, so much drive, so much so much dedication to people and love and, and community and culture and just expanding his growth. It was something that as a young person looking at education and my mom worked at Temple University. So she always told me that college never said they was gonna give you a job, that's period. They never said they was gonna do that. So people that go to college like, oh, I'm gonna be this because I went to college. Killed it because that same drive, that same tenacity, that same passion that I'm saying that my dad has, that you have to combine with that same person that has that education level because if you don't, you you find yourself pigeonholed in one way of thinking or one dynamic of living and you don't get that that full, like people say their hood, uh, common sense, commonality, common sense. You don't get that. You kind of get stuck in just 
one way of understanding how the world works. And that to me, and I always told Johnny, I said, that speaks so much volumes. And he always alludes to getting his experience from life. And I said, that's weird. That's how experience. And that's what I tell my teens. That's how experience. And that's how you know who you are. That's how you grow. You ask questions because you have, have you, you've been exposed to this and you didn't know how to understand it. So when you start to grow, you're like, oh, wait, 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 I got it. I know, I know where that came from. But that is more important to have that because in a textbook, it's harder to go back to that textbook where you learned that or you read that somewhere before. You're like, wait, hold up, I remember this. But that life experience, that, that um, classical conditioning, you don't, it's harder to forget that and that becomes more of the basis of who you are. I just... I appreciate that. I just wanted to motivate those people because who were like myself, who was told you're not going to be anything. Oh, you're a high school dropout. Oh, you have a GED. Those students specifically is who I want to like, definitely want this to resonate to because you have to understand your self-worth. And I just want them to understand their self-worth that comes with being successful. And you cannot be successful without knowing your self-worth and pushing yourself. And that does go beyond the bounds of what your, your bubble is. And I push myself out a lot in a lot of uncomfortable positions to make sure that I have the experience to understand and work with children. If anybody who's seen me work with children and just the level of traumas that I've dealt with and everything and just how I talk to them, everybody's like, oh, you're so great. You're so great. I'm experienced. It's not a lot. The fact that... Uh, education is because I've experienced these things firsthand. So the relatability factor came into play more so than anything. Um, but I do want to make sure that my message isn't confused. College is helpful, extremely helpful, but it's not always a means to being successful. Um, our time is running a little low. We have about like four more minutes left. So I just want to add on um, back in our day. So back in our day, Oh, I wish Jesse was here because we, me and Henry will play off each other. It used to be back in your day, back in, forget it. But Black History Month, um, who, I just want to ask you guys for a book, a movie, or a documentary that you would suggest for Black History Month. I'll kick it off. Um, Amend is something, a lot of the information in the movie Amend, I mean, the documentary Amend with Will Smith, I've seen. And I've heard about throughout youth, but there were some components that I didn't know about the 14th Amendment that I learned through that documentary. And I think it could be really helpful for a lot of people. Um, there's also a book that I read when I was younger. Um, and I think that it always resonated to me. Um, 1984, it's not Black history. It's not a book about Black history, but it is a book about systematic structure and how they make you think things that aren't true and how they give these false delusions. And that's essential within the black community. Do not let people narrate your life. I had my book ready. I already showed my book. They carried mm -hmm. us. <laughs> uh, I'm big on, you know, um, teaching our kids about our ancestors and, and the, the, the giants before us in our own neighborhoods who have been doing this work, the committee people and, and senators, just lots of people, you know, um, we hear a certain narrative. We hear a lot about the gun violence, but we don't often hear a lot about the people who have been fighting the fight and have paved the way so that I can be here and so that they can come through as well. And so 
Um, I'm also a Bettina, I love Bettina Love. I wanna do more, we wanna do more than survive is a great book for educators to read. Um, and um, I'm really just like into like telling the stories of people that are making it from Philly. You know, I tell stories about people like Anthony Burrell, who's a brother to me, but a choreographer for Beyonce, Rihanna, and he has his own, you know, dance studio in, in, in Atlanta. And I can call him right now and he'll get on a Zoom call with my kids. Like our kids need to know. Yeah, he was a little away from South Philly and we started on a group called South Philly Shakers and look where he is now. And so... Um, those are the stories. Those are the ones that are real and tangible and sticky for our kids. And um, those are the, those are the stories I want to hear them for our kids to know. For me, it was like any book by Kanjufu, um, you know, by Juwanza Kanjufu. I think if you are in a space and you're dealing with black children, you need to read any of his books. Because once you read one, you won't want to read another one, another one, another one. Um, but it was actually at, um, you know, former Congressman Fatah used to do a higher education conference. And that was the first time, and I was a teenager, got exposed to Kanjufu, and that changed my life. Um, he just, the things that he spoke and things that you didn't even think about. Um, and it, he's been met with so many different resistance because people don't really want to own their truths um, and really want to try to change the narrative. But the narrative is as is. And I would definitely say that any books, book by Kanjufu. Okay. I want to move on to Bernetta. Um, do you have a book, movie, or documentary? Well, I have all three, but um, <laughs> so I guess just in terms of our um, conversation today, the book that came to mind for me was a few books. Um, I love Black women that tell stories from 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 communities that look like mine. And the book that I would suggest is Elaine Brown, A Taste of Power. Uh, she's from North Philadelphia. She just, a, I mean, just that power of a Black woman and being very true and standing on what you believe in. I really, really, really enjoyed that book. Um, and then, like I said, it just speaks volumes because it's all Philadelphia. I'm from North Philadelphia. So it's just, it just talks about the things that happened before I actually came through or came up or grew up in that community. Um, also, um, I know why the cage bird sings. Uh, and if not the book, watch the movie. <laughs> it just was so powerful. I love, love, love Maya Angelou. But that was a very, very great book to see somebody that has a adverse situation. We talked about a lot of the children and the things that they go through, but telling their own story. And not only did she tell it, she created it. She said, well, I know how I want my life to end. Like, I know how this story is going to end. And it was just so powerful but yeah you just stop there <laughs> so i had thank you bernetta thank you miss miles mrs miles thank you mrs bright um we're moving on to our conclusion um i had a quote by marcus garvey who is somebody who i i think highly of in a lot of respects but listening to everything you guys said today and just the tone of this conversation, it made me think about a lot. Um, 
what I want to say is before you're anything, everybody talks about why this Black issue is such an issue. And I don't think they really get it. Um, before I'm a man, I'm Black. Before you're a woman, you're Black. Before you are gay or straight or trans, you are Black. Before you are Christian, Muslim, Jewish, or whatever religion you ascribe to, you are Black. And all they see is the color of your skin, your facial features, and your hair texture, and make judgments and treat you totally unjustly. I really feel like as Black people, we need to stop being crabs in a barrel in a lot of respects through a lot of different outlets. And we need to start supporting each other a whole lot more. And there's a lot of different social issues that I could touch on, but we know what they are. And as a Black community, we just have to hold each other responsible and start building each other more. And that Black love component on how men and women treat each other, on how father and son and mother and daughter treat each other is essential for us to be successful. How our neighbors treat each other and make sure to support this village of us as Black people is essential. And I wanna just put that out there as part of my conclusion for today. I would like to thank you, Ms. Mo Mrs. Miles, you, Mrs. Bright, Bernetta Williams, Andrew Spears, um, who's going to edit this podcast for us. Uh, Jesse Kohler, who is not here today. He's one of the people who is also in this podcast. All my listeners, but I also want to give a special shout out to a student, Kevin Davis, whose birthday is today. Today is February 19th. You all might not see this until later on today. When we talk about supporting our Black community, and being there for our Black community. It starts with our youth and it comes with guidance from us as Black males and Black females to support our youth to go down the right road. And regardless of whatever mistakes they may make, never to judge them, but support them through whatever they might make. 